This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the vision and purpose of the Australia, United Kingdom, and United States Strategic Partnership, also known as AUKUS. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. New threats and domains for warfare continually emerge. These include cyber and space, along with disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence and quantum. Dealing with these threats necessitates an enhanced partnership across governments and within industry. On September 15, 2021, leaders of Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States announced the creation of an enhanced trilateral security partnership, AUKUS. The agreement committed the parties to significantly deepen cooperation on a range of security and defense capabilities to be achieved through deeper integration of security and defense-related science, technology, industrial bases, and supply chain. How can AUKUS stakeholders leverage technology and innovation, from cloud computing and cybersecurity to artificial intelligence and quantum computing, to enhance security across the Indo-Pacific region? How can this partnership most effectively engage and work with industry? And what does the future hold as a result of the AUKUS partnership? In the first segment of this special edition, I welcome Brad McGrath from MITRE Australia and Dan Monroe from IBM Australia. Dan and Brad, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. So regarding the AUKUS partnership, most attention is focused on Pillar 1, which, as I understand, is the provision of nuclear-powered submarines. But what can you both tell me about the spate of Pillar 2, which I believe is technology and related components? Uh, so I'll start there. The, uh, the Pillar 2, to me, is, is very interesting, um, not just for the capabilities that are in there, uh, but to the speed at which they can be applied to AUKUS and the challenges we're all facing. I think, uh, as we all know, the submarine is a, is a necessary capability, but it's going to take time. Uh, whereas capabilities, perhaps notwithstanding quantum, but data and AI automation, the innovation, in information sharing, are all essential in and of themselves, can be done now, can be done quickly, and I suppose the key takeaway is they can also be put in place to support Pillar 1, um, both from a, uh, the business program perspective and the outcomes of the capability itself. Uh, Brandon, what do you think? Yeah, just definitely, Daniel. Um, actually, I'll build on that last point. So the, to me, the Pillar 2, first thing we have to recognise is the majority of the Pillar 2 technologies will directly support the Pillar 1. Um, as, as Dan said, is the Pillar 1... There's a physical embodiment. We've got a nuclear-powered submarine capability uh, that's very important for Australia. Um, it's also very important from the UK from a manufacturing perspective. And then it's very important for, for the US in terms of the capability across the three nations. So the, I think the first thing we need to recognise with Pillar 2 is that it does support Pillar 1. And, and, and that gives us a really some concrete uh, goals to go after. But then when we look at the bigger picture around Pillar 2, 
uh, you can see that it's about nation building uh, across across the three three countries, and, and then but also to recognise that for um, Australia in particular, this is a very important part of the partnership. Australia is typically known as a we're a mining country, we're an agricultural company, we provide services. Um, our, our high tech manufacturing is is not as well known as not as big. And so if we as a nation are to progress uh, in the 21st century here, we've really got to um, look at these other technologies. So I see Pillar 2 as not only supporting the Pillar 1, uh, but also very much a nation-building enterprise. And for that, we need the support of the UK, we need the support of the US, uh, because Pillar 2 is absolutely vital to Australia's future. So as we write in the collaborative report by the IBM Centre on this partnership, it is vital that industry contributes to the goals and aspiration of AUKUS. Uh, from your perspective, what are the most effective ways to engage and partner with industry in this context? I suppose the the easiest way to say it is uh, early and often uh, in terms of industry getting involved in that collaboration process. Uh, but what it comes down to is it goes to the nation building component in one aspect, but it goes to the support that we need. If I dig down one level, it's not just industry or the government or the defence forces. One of the challenges we're all facing here is um, is personnel, is skills, is the ability to put this into play. So um, when they talk about the collaboration, the innovation and the information sharing component, um, we need to be, as industries, engaged in the forums that are driven by the three major partners of, of AUKUS. It's not for industry to tell AUKUS where it's going and what it's doing and its reactions to the geopolitical, but we need to be supporting and in line. And I think one of the key things that we're really focused on, and, and especially perhaps some of the bigger companies, although we need to talk about just how important the SMEs are as well, the bigger companies that are global, we're in the UK, we're in the US, we're in Australia. What we have is the ability to share knowledge appropriately within security classifications that can enhance government's decision-making around this. So yes, it's early and quick, it's industry forums, it's round tables, it's with the senior executives, but it's perhaps with also the senior architects. It's all about getting engaged against the single vision that is contained within AUKUS. That's wonderful, Brad. Excellent. And, and actually, I'm going to I'm going to step back here. As I, recently, I was at a, a very good uh, uh, meeting uh, symposium in, in London on on AUKUS, and there was a concept that was raised, and it's called the sixth domain. So when we talk about um, the typical in defence, we talk about the the five domains, and but the sixth domain is industry, and we've only got to look at history, especially when we look at the US. Prior to World War II, um, the US in, industrial base was was good and big, but it was nowhere near what it was in, 19, uh, in 1940 or 41 when the US went to war. And what the US did there, if we look at history, is they looked at the, the titans of industry. The US defence, US military, US government went to the titans of industry. Um, they put stars on their shoulders and they mobilised the US industrial base. And I think we can all look at World War II from an historical perspective, and and, and really that was the difference. Um, the adversaries during those times could not 
uh, match the the power of of the U.S. industrial base. So this concept of of industry being the sixth domain, I think, is a really important thing that we need to be to be thinking about. We need to be talking about. Um, in a in a little bit, I'll be talking about federally funded research and development centres as as a, an addition to that. Uh, but initially, I think we we need to think of industry different. Industry shouldn't be seen as as, as at kept at arm's length from, from say, maybe a probity perspective. Uh, in Australia, we talk about, we have a concept called the line, and we have companies that, that develop stuff or produce stuff are kept below the line, uh, away from these decisions. So another concept that's been discussed, that's been talked about is let's, industry needs to be before the line. We need to get industry indoor, um, working with government, working with the um uh, with academia uh, at a much earlier stage. So let's talk about before the line. Let's talk about the sixth domain. Um, so I'm really excited about what AUKUS and what this partnership will bring because of the unique challenges. We need industry. History has shown us that industry uh, can be a very powerful force multiplier and we need to use industry. So AUKUS partners require decision superiority, systems commonality, innovation pull through, as we talked about earlier, industry collaboration and also skill building. What are some of the key ways to realize these capabilities? And I'm thinking in such areas as AI, autonomy, advanced cyber, uh, hypersonic, counter hypersonic capabilities, and, and even electronic warfare. The One of the other key phrases of that paper is to put data at the heart of decision making. And, and that's such a pervasive comment. On the one hand, the answer to your question is, uh, particularly in Australia, we're focusing on creating the mission-centric, and I I don't think that's unique. It's uh, what that translates is to, well, this is a specific mission that we're going after and we need to solve that. It gives us priority. It gives us focus. And if you put data at the heart of that, you are making good decisions made on the data that is necessary. Then you go into all sorts of discussions around where's that data coming from? Is it trusted? Uh, where's the lineage? Where's the governance? But when we talk about put the heart of data at the heart of decision making, it's not just for a military leader. That's also for our government leaders, the ministers. It's also for our procurement processes. It's how do we get all of that into the hands of the right people to make better decisions faster? Okay, so when it comes to um, how can we join all this together, uh, for mine, it's, it's it comes back to data and decision making, and it doesn't matter what level or what um, stage in the process you are from enterprise through to warfighting. Mm. Brad, so you mentioned keywords or, or key 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 points. So the key, my first keyword is trust. Um, when we when we talk about data when we talk about industry and government it, it's it's all about trust and we, we have to just and we're talking about orcas we're talking about across three nations um so i, I think the first key word that we always need to be talking about is trust and from there we can start not not just trust in each other uh, as dan mentioned the, the the data we we need to have trust in the data we need to have trust in the security of the data uh, we need to have trust in the validity of the data has it been verified um and then i think the other word that i that i'm keyword i'm looking at is is mission focused uh typically again within the defense and capability space what's the mission 
and, and getting people thinking about the mission and, and how can we bring about a digital transformation that has data that is shared across multiple nations um, and, and how can we all trust it? So there's sort of three words that I'd like to, to, to put out there um, to really to get to the heart of all those technologies because all those technologies are very important. Uh, we need them going forward. But unless we have that trust um, and the ability to focus on the mission, uh, I think we're going to run into significant problems and, and delays. So, Daniel, in your earlier response, you underscored the importance of data and that it's at the heart of decision making. I'd like to continue with that line of thought, but bring it to the idea of making systems and networks quantum safe. Why is this so important? Uh, I know one of us is a PhD and one of us is not, so I won't try and dive into too much of what is quantum. But um, again, without trying to be too flippant, this is another start now moment. Okay, because um, I, I think um, a, a lot of us would be familiar with the fact that whilst we can't crack current cryptology today, it's coming. All of the data, you, we have to assume that there's huge chunks of data that are already sitting in adversaries' databases, okay, waiting to be cracked by, um, um, by quantum, okay? So we need to start um, considering what quantum is capable of and then, of course, you have quantum safe. Now, that's a set of um, algorithms and approaches that have already been worked through and are being worked through by NIST in the in the US. But there are currently um, uh, processes to allow data to be made quantum safe only so long as you start thinking of it from that perspective. So in some senses, you do not need to become a quantum engineer. You just need to understand the risks inherent with quantum and be aware that there is a thing called quantum safe, an approach called quantum safe, and a set of technologies around that. That is available now, and that can be started to be used to protect against any future capabilities from quantum. So I, I think if I was going to pull out the couple of key words, it's, it's start now, okay, and we are capable of making some of our, our data quantum safe through those approaches. Brett? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point, Dan. I wanted to, to sort of add, to, especially around this AUKUS and, and, and trust and data. If we step back, what we're, what we're talking about, what we need to achieve, and I think it's, it's a key about me, we need multi-level security. So, again, we're talking about the classic infosec problem. We need unclassed, classified, top secret, all different levels of classification. So multi-level security. Um, we're talking about a, a three-nation sovereign um, partnership. We've also got national interests here as well. So, in effect, we've got uh, multinational, we've got multi-classification. So, data is, is sits right at the middle of this, but we need that the levels of protection across, um, not only across typical within country, but we've also got across uh, national boundaries. And so, th these are, are, are really true challenges. And, and when we look at cryptology, cryptology is only a matter of time and, and nothing, no data is um, safe. It's just a matter of time. And, and it all goes back to if the adversary has the time and the money, they will crack it. And all we can do is exploit the data, exploit the decision-making, uh, um, use the, the mission-focused and, and use that data because at the end of the day, they will get it at some point. 
Where quantum comes in, it's the game changer. It's an order of magnitude. It reduces the cost of breaking um, the codes and, and the barriers that we put in place. So um, I absolutely agree with Dan. We've got to start now. Quantum's not there yet getting, um, but this idea of data um, being central to everything is key. But if we don't trust the data, if the US doesn't trust Australia, if Australia doesn't trust the UK, et cetera, et cetera, this whole partnership will break down very, very quickly. And, and quantum is the tool that lowers the cost of barrier to the adversary. So we need to be ready. We need to start now. Uh, and we need to be, be looking at what is quantum safe? What do we need to do? When do we need to do it? Okay. A now. Dan and Brad, I'm wondering, what does the future hold as a result of the AUKUS partnership? Well, uh, look, the future, I think, is, is, again, from an Australian perspective, um, AUKUS is, is very exciting, um, especially for advanced manufacturing, these capabilities. We need them from a nation building. But if I go back to the uh, industry and, and the sixth domain, one of the things that the US brought in at the end of uh, World War II, at the beginning of the Cold War, was this concept of a federally funded research and development centre. And the, really the idea there is, is to build a nation, you've got to really expand your R&D, your S&T communities. And this was another uh, avenue to provide that upskilling, um, that building up of a nation uh, building. And the thing about an FFRDC, which makes it unique, um, it's, it's unique to the US and, and Australia. The UK have um, has some, doesn't nothing really like like the US one, but it's 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 federally funded by the by the US government. But they are private, not for profit companies, so they don't have those same industry pressures of shareholders and and stock prices and and uh, profit margins. Uh, but they're not government either. Um, so that they, uh, they're not restricted by government procurement or government um, uh, hiring practices. And then finally, they're, they're very focused on more later stage technology. So it allows the universities, it allows the government labs to focus on that basic research, which is what universities do very well, um, but allows these organisations across the US to really focus on that latter stage of, of the research uh, life cycle, uh, much closer to the capability. And, and the U.S. defense, the U.S. government, the U.S. national security, actually all of U.S. government has used the FFRDCs for 70 years. Um, some of the more famous names that, that we think about is RAND from a policy and strategy. Um, another big name is the Jet Propulsion Lab. They were very instrumental, obviously, in, in, in NASA's and, and space exploration to this day. Uh, and then across the defense sector, uh, there's MITRE and, and Aerospace, uh, very well-known organizations within the US. It's the idea is they sit in between government, industry and academia. And, and it's about, again, building those collaboration, build, building that data transfer uh, because all three parties, um, um, there, there's no conflict between all of those three parties with the FFRDC model. For me to build on that, it's things like FFRDCs being released or congressional decisions to come into Australia as well and be helped, that's a force multiplier. In Australia, it's not exactly the same thing, but um, we've created the Advanced Strategic Capability Accelerators. Yet another catalyst to focus on the missions, those missions are associated with the goals and objectives of, of AUKUS, right? Um, they are also 
so associated with specific to Australian objectives. But I think the point I'm trying to make here is what makes me excited about the future of AUKUS and where it's going, it's given us another catalyst, another boost in integration and collaboration across industry, across governments and across the globe. And to me, that's a very good way to make sure that we've got what we need in terms of national security. Dan and Brad, I want to thank you for joining me today. This was wonderfully insightful. Thank you. Thanks Thanks very much. Thank you. More on the vision and purpose of the Australia, United Kingdom and United States Strategic Partnership when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the vision and purpose of the Australia, United Kingdom, and United States Strategic Partnership, AUKUS. In this second segment of the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, I welcome Professor John Louth to offer a UK perspective on the AUKUS partnership. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much indeed. I look forward to it. So uh, I was wondering if you could give us some insight for our audience. What prompted the establishment of the Australian-UK-United States partnership? Um, I think there are a number of drivers, and and in part it depends on who you speak to, I suppose. Uh, But but the drivers for me are uh, the encouragement that China now uh, is focusing on into uh, the South China Sea specifically, but but more broadly around uh, it, its near borders. I think a, a confident China is uh, forcing the West to look at its security arrangements. I think secondly, uh, Australia, through its own uh, conversations, felt strongly that it needed to recapitalize its forces, uh, especially maritime forces. Uh, I think as well, there's a US perspective that wants to uh, seek uh, continuous security and indeed hegemony through partners. So I think that the the space was there for a uh, broader and more sweeping set of arrangements between the UK, uh, US and Australia. The the danger, of course, is, is that they're they're three very different countries, uh, different economic mass, different defence budgets, and it's going to be really interesting to see how uh, 
of a very large strategic uh, defense player, plays with a mid-tier player, plays with an emerging player. So I think there are challenges there as well. That's an excellent point. So my next question was really about, I, initially I thought maybe getting your UK perspective, but we can go beyond that. And I was wondering, what are some of the key imperatives as opposed to what prompted the partnership for these three uh, nation states getting together? Well, I think there's, uh, the, beyond the security imperative, which is is clearly there, especially for the nations bordering the Pacific, and, and the UK still strongly believes that it's a, uh, that it has a role to play um, as part of a broader international policeman role, if you like, uh, but is very conscious that it is dependent upon trade. So there was always going to be a dead-eyed look at the Indo-Pacific area from the British. I think beyond the security perspective, though, there's an economic perspective. I think prosperity through defence and maximising defence budgets is very thematic in the UK, both main parties are talking openly about properly maximizing the benefits and the returns from uh, an investment in defense. And that happens through partnerships and collaboration. So I think the British are expecting uh, the order book of companies based or headquarters in the UK to benefit uh, from AUKUS. Uh, but then, of course, so are the Americans and the Australians believe that they'll be able to uh, develop their competencies, capabilities, and uh, warfighting abilities through the relationship. Great point. It's a great segue. So regarding all this, like most uh, attention is focused on what they call, I believe, Pillar 1, which is the provision around nuclear-powered submarines. But what what can you tell us, John, about the spat of Pillar 2, which is technology and related components? What's going on there? I think it's really interesting. It, P- Pillar 1, there's a physicality to it. So you can see how the contracts are going to run. There's a design and build in, imperative for uh, the new submarine that the British and the Australians will operate from the 40s and, and beyond. There, there's a sense that uh, the Australians will, will buy a number of uh, Virginia-class submarines in the short to midterm uh, from the Americans and will all join together in, and operate uh, jointly from uh, Western Australia from about 26, 27. So there's a physicality to, to Pillar 1 that is tied up in the operational domain, through the contracts, and through how we're going to commercialize uh, our relationships to generate uh, nuclear-powered submarines in, in Australia. And we can see what that looks like. Pillar 2 is more uh, foggy. Uh, it is, you're absolutely right, focused on uh, emerging technologies and maturing technologies. Uh, the, the, the usual suspects, uh, AI, autonomy, uh, quantums, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not really sure how those things are going to be commercialized, how they appear within uh, the programs and research projects that will underpin uh, AUKUS, or indeed how how, how we think the uh, permissions will work between the three states in, in, in terms of security permissions and export permissions. So there there's an awful lot of enabling work to be done within the so-called 
pillar two. Now, there's a lot of uh, joint working going on at the moment. The working groups are trying to unpick the headline requirements, but without extant programs and projects for pillar two with a physicality to those requirements. I think we're going to be sort of working very much in kind of innovative spaces to bring those technologies to the front line. Mm, That's terrific. Um, I know you're writing, you're in the midst, I believe, of writing a book around this partnership and uh, the implications thereof. But I was wondering, um, what are some of the most significant new and emerging threats and domains that you see out there that necessitate such an enhanced partnership across governments like the US, UK, and the Australian with industry? Oh well, well, I think when when I think back to my time in in the British military, we we pretty much had uh, land, sea, air domains that followed the uh, traditional UK services: Royal Air Force, Royal Navy, and and Army, and that's how we thought about about conflict, you know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties. Now you have you know a cyber domain. You know, there's a huge, significant challenge from space there's the integration of new operational domains with the existing and extant domains that is truly mind-bending and mind-blowing and you know we're having to think through how we can now develop an order of battle that deters a growing power such as china uh, contains it and constrains it as necessary and it, it, it's all a little bit different from the kind of conventional uh, warfare that perhaps we we certainly used to last century and we've seen uh, in the early years of this century i think the 30s and beyond are going to uh, prompt kind of force structures and capabilities that we're only just starting to wrap our heads around and the more people who think about it both in government and in industry, academia, technology, startups, etc., the more brain power we can bring to these problems and challenges. So, if, if anything, I start from the premise that you know, AUKUS is partly a brains trust at the moment. We, we have the physicality of pillar one, but we have the possibility and potential of pillar two, with lots of folk uh, of goodwill and strong minds looking at how pillar two can enable these wider domain constructs. So AUKUS partners um, will face an unprecedented set of challenges and and must find new and creative solutions to, you know, the old but the emerging problems, which are really significant. I was wondering if I could get your perspective on, are there any specific advanced capabilities that the partnership needs to pursue? And perhaps you could maybe allude to, maybe identify some on how they can work together to find these new and creative solutions. Well, I think there's some some interesting work that uh, IBM's been been doing on you know, moving beyond the idea of just open architectures and thinking about you know broader systems commonality that 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 really takes us to the next level in terms of data sharing and data utilization, and I th- I think data and its speed of use and its uh, Kind of capillary flow of data into all operational areas is going to be absolutely critical uh, for the next two or three decades at least. I think as well, you'll see that 
data and, and manipulation and use of data will allow us to innovate much more quickly and, and, and share thinking and share practice much more quickly through data sets. I think that takes us into not just government to government collaborations, but government to business collaborations and business to business collaborations across multiple borders. Now that's challenging for us, it seems to me, because you know we have uh, a whole range of security protocols and practices that follow national lines, and the 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 Americans and the British have been very good in terms of uh, enabling. Uh, nuclear propulsion, nuclear technologies uh, from US to UK. We're now having to think a whole range of, of different ways of expanding that to a third party. And I think whilst that's a challenge for government, it's also a huge challenge for industry. You know, I'm just thinking through now, you know, what are the assumptions that we're uh, going to have for dare I say, the, the build and assembly of the of the new submarine. You know, part of the Australian ambition is to have national competencies, quite rightly, uh, for all of the capabilities that they, they field. But are we really going to be building from scratch submarines in Australia, or are we assembling submarines in Australia, or actually we're just delivering submarines to Australia? And interestingly, different people have different assumptions now we're going to have to come to sometime soon uh, old style program management sort of master data and assumption set on where we think things are going to reside and that's probably the easy part before we get onto questions around storage of nuclear waste and all these kind of things you know which become really really difficult particularly in a country like australia that hasn't had to deal with these questions before so you know, I think there's going to be huge challenges around how we uh, optimize the opportunities for Pillar 2 into the physicality of Pillar 1. And I think coming back to your earlier point about what you know, core technologies are going to be able to help us with that, well, it's, it's a pick-and-mix fight, isn't it? I think we'll be able to sort of utilize a mix of maturing technologies, uh, automation AI that we're seeing in sixth gen aircraft perhaps you know, applied to pillar to AUKUS. Challenge there is the British and the Americans are probably in competition with each other for sixth gen aircraft. So all of that's going to have to be unpacked and unpicked a little bit. And I, I, I suspect we're we're going to have to be very fluid and flexible in our identities, you know, that we that we're happy to exist you know, in different spaces commercially, that, that we can have a competitive phase, perhaps in the air domain, and a more collaborative phase in maritime sort of subsea and crude domains, where the technologies bleed across those barriers. And we've never really done it before, but it's going to be very, very interesting to see you know, how we behave to make this work. Mm, that's an excellent point. I was just wondering, none of this could really happen without a partnership with industry. From your vantage point, John, what are the most effective ways to engage and partner with industry in this context? I think if we were talking a few years ago, people would start with the word certainty. Now, now of course, there is no certainty. Pillar, Pillar 2 does not bring with it certainty. It brings with it opportunity. So I think 
industry has to accept that it's more fluid than perhaps uh, boardrooms would would like. You know, there are not going to be any over user requirements and system requirements for pillar two activities in the near term. I think that's just a given. But that allows us to think more creatively. And in industry, that's what people do fantastically well. So we can think what have the three governments paid for already in terms of the research and development space that they're supporting. I mentioned the air domain earlier. Well, we know in the UK that the British government has supported BA systems and Leonardo in developing prototypes and technological potential systems for uh, future combat air. Well, could some of those emerging technologies and, and emerging capabilities feed their way into pillar two, given that one government has already paid for them and probably very, very similar in the US, et cetera, et cetera. So just being open to those possibilities and being open to that potential, you know, we could think how the government dollar and the industrial dollar can combine uh, to a much greater effect than if there was an old style requirement for something called autonomy or something called artificial intelligence. And I think industry is going to have to start that conversation and, and, and be the champion for that conversation and see the opportunities that the way they've been financed already by government could bring to pillar two. It's interesting because the IBM Center report that we put out identifies that the partnership requires decision superiority, system commonality, innovation pull through. And so AUKUS partners require decision superiority, systems commonality, innovation pull through. As we talked about earlier, industry collaboration and also skill building. What are some of the key ways to realize these capabilities? And I'm thinking in such areas as AI, autonomy, advanced cyber, uh, hypersonic, counter-hypersonic capabilities, and, and even electronic warfare. Yeah, uh, I think EW is, is, is critical in, in, in this regard. I, I think we really exploit the opportunities that these things offer us in the way we've always exploited them, and that's through communities, communities of interest. So you know, within the IBM report, it talked a little bit about building skills and capacity, that's pivotal to have a multi-generation body of knowledge into something like AI uh, or AI autonomy that enables EW, however you want to phrase it. And that starts with the course requirements in universities and higher education that feeds down to the uh, math, science, engineering, requirements in schools, uh, a, a commonality of uh, intelligentsia across the three nations and beyond that allows uh, people to have informed, uh, open conversations about these subjects, which lead to meaningful uh, research activities. Uh, all of that starts from investment, of course. Now, if you, if you look at the UK, where pretty much locked down in terms of what we think our higher education sector looks like. That's different in Australia. So in South Australia, the universities are reforming themselves uh, quickly. I mean, we'll see an awful lot of changes in, in and around Adelaide, I suspect, over the next few years. And right at the heart of that are new courses for uh, pillar two activities. 
so you, you you'll see things that have uh, autonomy artificial intelligence electronic warfare etc in the title of the courses now we need to make sure that in the uk we start to reflect that a little bit more in terms of our uh, strong engineering courses as well that community of knowledge into things that are at the cutting edge of um, the academy are brought to bear in a way that allows young folk to offer their skills to defense uh, or at least have the opportunity to use the knowledge that they're generating to build our defense capability and capacity. John, what does the future hold for this partnership? Well, the, the, the good thing, of course, at the moment is that there is a uh, long pole in the tent. We, we have Pillar 1, and we know that Pillar 1 is going to be generating uh, engineering capacity and physical shapes that will populate and will put people in. That is a fantastic thing to have, you know, that we, we, we have a capability uh, program that runs across the three nations. That, that pillar one uh, cooperation is going to be critical to unlock uh, pillar two activities. So I think notwithstanding the technologies, the behaviours and the skills, stroke competencies that we want across the three nations within this partnership are going to be key to really generating the defence capabilities that we want. Second point, of course, is yeah, there's a strong educational piece here, it seems to me, that the populations of the three nations, they have huge economic and social challenges in their own right, within their lands. Uh, making the case for defence is going to get more and more challenging, it seems to me, when there are other polls on uh, public monies, being able to exploit technological development initially in the defence domain for uh, greater use across broader societal imperatives is going to be a very, very strong argument that supports defence in the years ahead. So I think using defence as a petri dish for some of these challenging and difficult technologies can be really, really helpful to the broader argument for defense and society. Mm, that's a great way to end this. Thank you, John, for joining me today and providing us with your insight. Michael, a pleasure. More on the vision and purpose of the Australia, United Kingdom, and United States Strategic Partnership when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. 
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the vision and purpose of the Australia, United Kingdom, and United States Strategic Partnership, AUKUS. In this final segment of the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, I welcome Fred Kagan from the American Enterprise Institute. Fred, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. So, Fred, given your perspective, what are some of the most significant new and emerging threats and domains that kind of necessitate and enhance partnership, multilateral partnerships we're seeing, in this case with the U.S., U.K., and Australia, but in general, what are some of these threats and why should we partner? So to begin with, um, the Chinese threat itself is expanding and growing uh, in many domains. Uh, It's growing in the military domain, of course, but it's also growing in the cognitive domain, the information space, um, and just across the board. And it requires a concerted effort by all of the states that are interested in uh, protecting the values that we and the Australians and the Brits and our and the Japanese and South Koreans and uh, the Taiwanese hold dear. Um, we need to have a strong coalition uh, to resist the Chinese pressure um, on those values and on our partners. So I think the imperative for building strong coalitions has never been greater. And strong coalitions have to go beyond diplomatic agreements and words. They have to go to functional interoperability, interoperability and agreement of concepts, frameworks, standards, and so forth. And I think the the power of AUKUS in general is that it is attacking, even beyond, uh, as your report shows, the issue of submarines, it is attacking the problems that can stand in the way of operationalizing the kind of coalition approach to defending our allies and values that is going to be absolutely essential in the environment that we're facing today in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to get into some of those that environment, if you could give me, a, even if we go beyond the Pacific, but uh, some of the challenges, um, we'll need to find new and creative solutions to these challenges. Are there any specific advanced capabilities that you're seeing that the partnership or any of these multilateral partnerships should be pursuing and and how can they work together to really leverage some creative solutions to these challenges? So I think that the the report does a very good job of laying out um, what I would say are sort of the the challenges that we've been talking about for some time um, and getting after them. Obviously, you know the AUKUS is built around a submarine requirement that that is apparent. Um, but talking about bringing in AI, talking about um, working toward uh, decision superiority um, and so forth. Are, these are things we've been talking about for a while, and I think that this is an effort to uh, get after these requirements in a concrete way, which is very important. But um, the work that I've been doing uh, focusing on Ukraine has also brought uh, to my mind um, a number of challenges that I think we're going to have to consider as we move forward uh, in this in this discussion. So one of the things that has stood out uh, about the war in Ukraine has been this this is the first war, I think, where we've really seen uh, large numbers of unmanned systems on both sides being used in a very advanced and networked way. At the same time, we've seen an incredibly intense and effective electronic warfare campaign that has had the effect of disrupting uh, communications on the battlefield on a very wide scale. And I think there are a lot of lessons that we can and should draw from this war. 
I'm starting to to say that the war in Ukraine is to the next major uh, war, probably like the Spanish Civil War was to the Second World War. It's the war where we see these technologies and these challenges emerging for the first time at, at, at a certain scale. And we're really going to have to think through what their implications are going to be for the kind of larger scale war that um, we are preparing for and, of course, hoping to deter rather than fight. That's an excellent point, that deterrence over the alive kinetic war. So I was wondering, Fred, if you're thinking about so we talk about the states in this uh, dynamic, uh, whether in the case of the AUKUS, whether it's UK, US, or or Australia. Um, industry needs to play a role here. And I'm trying to figure out what are some of the most effective ways in your mind from what you're seeing on the ground, if we use Ukraine, Ukraine as an example, effective ways to engage and partner with industry in this context. So, you know, again, one of the things that's fascinating about the Ukraine war is how very much of the most important technology has been commercial off-the-shelf technology that the Ukrainians have just bought or that the Russians have just bought, uh, for that matter. Um, most of the unmanned systems are commercial systems. Um, most of the means that the Ukrainians are using to communicate are commercial systems. Um, and a lot of the software and integration that's being put together is not coming through any kind of military procurement channels, doesn't meet any kind of mil spec, uh, you know, or that kind of thing, and is the result of a lot of innovation that is being driven by creative people on, in the Ukrainian military interacting with creative people in the technology space to find rapid solutions to immediate concrete problems. And I think this is something, we, again, this is something we've been talking about for a very long time, but I think we need to get serious about this. Um, if we're going to really be able to adapt at the speed required to succeed, we're going to have to break ourselves free of the traditional procurement models and the traditional focus on processes, procedures, um, policies, and all of that sort of stuff. As much as we can create space for a dynamic interaction between uh, industry and people who have immediate problems that they need to solve right now that could in many cases be solved by a rapid turn with industry but will not be solvable if that has to go through a normal procurement process, you know, that was designed to buy aircraft carriers. Mm, excellent point. You know, in the report that we're kind of talking about during this show, it's it, it mentions the importance of data. And I was wondering, Fred, given your background, given your perspective, how important is it to the success of any partnership, say we go beyond any of these multilateral agreements, to put data at the heart of decision making? And, and can you offer through your many years uh, involved in this area? Um, any insights on how could, it can be effectively done? Well, look, I mean, on the one hand, if you don't have the data, you can't make sound decisions. On the other hand, data doesn't make sound decisions. Um, and more data is not necessarily more better um, unless it's presented in a way that's actually useful uh, to the decision maker in a timely fashion. And you can easily overwhelm decision makers. We've been talking about this for decades. Um, so I think we need to talk about, you know, what, what kind, what kind of data for what purpose? I think there are a couple of things, there are, there are a couple of, of, of issues here that are most important. I think that your report gets at them. On the one hand, there's the issue of data that is used to train AI models, AI or ML models. Um, 
That's very important, um, especially if we talk about training AI ML models that can then operate disconnected or in a degraded uh, communication state. So if we're training models and then pushing them to the edge, um, I think they'll retain a lot of their value. If we're training models and imagining that they're going to rely on robustly connected and continuously connected data feeds, I think that's likely to be something we should be more concerned about based on the environment that we're seeing coming out of the war in Ukraine. So I, I think data to train models is very important. And then we have to think about exactly where the models live and exactly how we use them. And I know people are doing that, but I would just, would just highlight that issue. But the other aspect of data that I think is um, has always been a, a major issue, but I've, I've been seeing Ukrainians working on this in a sort of a fascinating way, is data fusion. And the challenge of bringing data in from all sources and presenting it in a straightforward and easily comprehensible and, ex and way that leads to rapid execution of decision based on data uh, to decision makers and then making it sort of um, decentralizing that so that this isn't all just data feeding into one massive strategic operations center somewhere from which all the orders flow. Uh, but this is data fusion at all levels. Um, and this, the Ukrainians have, have some very interesting, uh, things going on here where they've replicated, uh, with sort of shoestrings and bubblegum, uh, data fusion activities that we've spent tens of billions of dollars to, to generate, but they've done it in a very decentralized, uh, sort of way. We have also, um, but I think that there's, there's a lot to learn here about Again, I keep coming back to operating in denied or degraded environments and giving units and individuals as as close to the edge as possible, as much of the benefit as you can from the data and the models, even in degraded and denied environments, I think is going to be a big challenge for us. So, Fred, you know, you did other work with us, a partnership with the IBM Center regarding the uh, recent series of reports around visualizing information operations in a defense setting. I'm wondering, is there any complement to the the ACUS report um, on this? And um, could you tell us more about that effort, the visualizing information operations? Yeah, so our adversaries are becoming very adept at designing and conducting what in Asia tends to be called cognitive warfare campaigns. This is information campaigns that are designed to present a certain view of reality to the opponent, which is to say us, um, and try to cause us to make decisions on the basis of that reality that actually favor, in this case, it would be the Chinese. And uh, the Russians and the Chinese have both been really working hard to develop advanced um, information operations along these lines and have been successful in some very important ways. Um, we've argued in the paper, and this is kind of controversial, and I accept the controversy that, in fact, the information domain is, a, is another domain of warfare, uh, which is to say a domain in which the adversary seeks to achieve decisive effects, not just in the informational domain, but in the war in general, and that it's a domain for which we have no serious ability to visualize. So, I can tell you, I can describe for you uh, Russian information operations, multiple Russian information operation campaigns uh, before and during the Ukraine war. But 
we know how to visualize a military campaign, right? You've got, you know, we were on this territory, we're advancing along this axis toward this objective. And this is, you know, we, we know exactly how to draw those maps. We don't really know how to visualize an information campaign. And that I think is a problem because if you don't know how to visualize something, and if you can't visualize something, then it's very much harder to comprehend it and certainly to comprehend it quickly. And that was the challenge that we uh, that we posed in the series of papers. It's very relevant in Asia. The Chinese have been very effective at um, conducting information operations on many time scales. And this is one of the things that we tried to highlight in, uh, I think, the third paper of that or in the third uh, report of that series. Um, which is that on the one hand, you have information operations the Chinese have been running for decades that are meant at establishing fundamental predicates about the conflict uh, and its nature, that if to the extent that the world agrees with them, it's very much harder to have an actually accurate geostrategic conversation about what our interests even are. On the other hand, they could spin very rapid, very short-term information operations, for example, around the proposed trip of the Speaker of the House of Representatives to Taiwan. And it's important that we visualize all of these, um, and it's important that we find a way to visualize and comprehend the way these multi-decade informational operations intersect and interact with very short-term, uh, very sudden um, and acute information operations so that we can, first of all, recognize when we're being the subject of, of information operations. That's the first thing. And then second of all, that we can design counter information operations um, so that we can contest this domain as well as all the other domains. Mm, excellent point. Well, Fred, I, I want to thank you for joining me today and offering your perspective. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the vision and purpose of the Australia, United Kingdom, and United States Strategic Partnership, AUKUS. You can download the new IBM Center Report, Strengthening the Future of the AUKUS Partnership and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Spotify, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app and at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.